You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey, quick note before we start. We failed to mention this in the episode, but our guest has actually done a translation and edition of the text we're talking about. It's not the one we're going to be reading from for our episodes on it, for copyright reasons, but I would encourage you to seek it out if you want to follow along, because we're not going to be reading every word of Procopius. And Dr. Caldellis's edition is, I think, both more affordable and more readable than the older translation we're using. So check that out. And let's get going. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Maniculum Podcast. I am Zoe, a professional game developer, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac, a PhD candidate at Purdue University. And we are weird medievalists who teach you how to adapt weird medieval stories into TTRPGs. Today, we have a fabulous guest with us, someone that I met at the Kazoo Medieval Conference. But before we get into that, Just want to shout it out that we have ways to connect with us, get in touch with us, get involved in the podcast, and those are our social medias. So we have our Discord, we have our Instagram, our, I guess, Twitter, X, what are we calling it these days? I don't know, the Dying Bird platform. All of those wonderful (laughs) things we have. And we have a Patreon, so if you want to help support the show and get some cool bonus episodes and extra TTRPG material, we have that for you as well. You can find all of these wonderful things in our show notes, or just look us up online. We're on the internet. If you can spell maniculum, pick the hard name. But anyway, with that, I would love to introduce our wonderful guest, Dr. Anthony Caldellis, who is here today to speak about... Gosh, Byzantine history and and Mac, you're gonna you're gonna bring in our text that I have no idea what we're talking about today. Yeah, do you want me to talk first, or do you want uh, Dr. Caldellis to do his introduction first? What exactly is my introduction? It is whatever you want to introduce about yourself. <laughs> okay, no, I, I think what you said summed it up. I'm a professor in classics at the uh, University of Chicago, originally from Greece, but I've been in the U.S. for thirty three years. And I'm a specialist in Byzantine history and literature. I've done a number of translations, and I'm about to publish a new history of the Eastern Roman Empire from beginning to end. So from Constantine in the 4th century to the Ottoman conquest in the 15th, a work that's about 1,000 pages, and it took me a very long time to write. Congratulations. That is an endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm probably going to read that book once it comes out. Absolutely. That sounds great. All right, so what are we actually talking about? Yes, so the reason we have Dr. Caldellis on today is longtime listeners and anyone who's gone through our back catalog may recall that some time ago, when we were doing our first multi-episode series on a text, we did a poll asking, would our listeners prefer to hear Perlis Vouse or would they prefer Procopius's secret history? And the poll was tied possibly because only like 12 people voted, but still. <laughs> so we ended up doing Perlis Vows first because we had just done a Byzantine text, but mm-hmm. I decided that since it was tied, the next time I presented a longer series, it was going to be Procopius, and that time is now. However, 
We thought it would be helpful to have some kind of introduction because we're stepping like to the very edge of our our lane, I guess, mm-hmm. with this text. This is the oldest text we've read yet. It's probably going to hold on to that record for the foreseeable future because it's from that time period where like the early Middle Ages and late antiquity kind of overlap. So we're about as far back as we can go and still be considered medieval. Medieval. It's a very blurry line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is a 6th century Byzantine text. And to give you an idea of just how blurry which era we're in is, this is my copy of Procopius. Since this is an audio medium, for the listeners, I am holding up a volume of the Loeb Classical Library, which... You generally do not find medieval texts inside. So since we're in a different era and a different setting and a general different vibe than our usual territory, I thought it would be good to provide our listeners with some background, some information, some some way to understand what's going on in this time and place. Since, again, it's it's several hundred years distant from the texts we usually do. And to that end, we have an expert who, as, as Zoe mentioned, we uh, met on a panel at Kalamazoo. So, Mac, if I can jump in, it's interesting that you would hold up the Loeb. So the Loeb is a series that today is identified primarily with classical texts, so classical Greek and classical Latin. The Greek are green, the Latin are red. And that wasn't the original intention. The original intention was much broader. So this was like over 100 years ago. The plan was for these series to encompass, well, certainly on the Greek side, most of what we would consider Byzantine literature. Really? Yeah, because it's written in the same kind of register of language, a lot of it. So Procopius is writing a very clear and competent form of ancient Greek. It's not pure Attic Greek like Plato and Demosthenes, but it's, it's very well done. This is, he's not writing in the language that he spoke, which was, right. ah, you know, kind of closer to modern Greek. But it's, it's closer to that. And that's why he's included. There is also a text from the 11th century, which is the life of Barlaam and Yoasaf, which was then attributed to John of Damascus in the 8th century. But we now know it's an 11th century kind of hagiography that includes elements of the life of the Buddha in it and, and so forth. Yeah, I've heard of this one. It's actually on my list of yep. texts that we should do one day. That's cool. Yep. So, you know, Basel of Caesarea is in there. Nonus is in there. So there, there's some later texts. And that's because this kind of rigid dividing line between classical and like not classical hadn't yet kind of crystallized. The classicists hadn't yet fully developed their allergy for all later things, you know, <laughs> like Christian things. And so that component gradually got lost, and later volumes didn't continue that intent. So actually now, in the 21st century, there's a whole different series that's picked up the slack, which is the Dumbarton Oaks Medieval Library, where it has a Greek subseries, and we're adding volumes to that. Also published by Harvard uh, University Press in conjunction with Dumbarton Oaks. Anyway, so you're exactly right. This period, the 6th century, is almost impossible to categorize in terms of like ancient medieval, you know, late antique, early medieval, East Roman, Byzantine. Is it late Roman? Is it early Byzantine? Okay. Obviously, we know that these terms are all like made up. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. And that's that's why we have a problem, because they're just all made up terms. All right. So I'll say one thing about the sixth century, just to give your audience a sense of how, how odd and extraordinary it is in some ways, and also difficult to classify. So there's a narrative about the fall of the ancient Roman Empire. And this comes in like two phases. There's the fall of the Western Empire in the 5th century. And this kind of kicks off the Middle Ages for those of you who are interested in that part of the world. And then there are the Arab conquests in the East in the 7th century. And this kind of kicks off the medieval Eastern, you know, Middle East or Mediterranean or whatever you want to call it with Islam and Byzantium and so forth. And then there's this period in between those two. So those two kind of fit the standard narrative of the Roman Empire falling to pieces and the Middle Ages kind of, you know, emerging out of the ruins of the Roman Empire. The 6th century, however, disrupts that narrative like, completely. And if you would not expect it. I teach it as the kind of unexpected century. So if you're following that trajectory, you would not imagine that in the 6th century, the Eastern Roman Empire would become like this cultural dynamo and source of conquest, reconquer North Africa, reconquer Italy and bits of Spain and kind of turn the Mediterranean back into a Roman lake and build things like Hagia Sophia. And there's this extraordinary literary production in this period including first-rate authors such as Procopius, uh, we'll be talking about, but also like monumental works that shaped really important aspects of history thereafter, like the compilation of Roman law. This is Justinian, who is the major emperor of this period, Justinian's corpus of uh, civil law, right? So when we talk about Roman law, historically, we mean Justinian's corpus. That's what we mean. Like our access to Roman law independently of that compilation is quite limited. So Roman law is what Constantinople in the 6th century said it was, right? And so we have all of these texts, and they're in Greek, and they're in Latin, and they're in Syriac, and we also have some Coptic texts and so on. So this is really interesting, flourishing literary scene with authors, you know, on all kinds of the parts of the ideological spectrum, right? And it is a period of extremes. We got to keep this in mind, mm -hmm. right? You've got... Linked to the same emperor, again, Justinian, you have extremes of cultural accomplishment, like building a Sophia, which is like by far one of the best things that the Romans ever built, just architecturally in terms of its artistic value and so forth. But you also have this really intolerant persecution of religious minorities. You have the onset of the plague, right, in 541. So really, yeah. really traumatic event for people who live through it. You have these wars that are destroying whole provinces. Italy is kind of plunged into ruin after a 20-year war. So there are very familiar aspects of the Middle Ages that kick in at this time. And then there are also aspects mm -hmm. that you'd think are the culmination of ancient culture, not medieval, right? And these things coexist, right? So this is how this period kind of is difficult to classify. None of the terms really work and so forth. And to butt in here, one of my favorite things, because I, I have studied this period, and it was actually one of my favorite periods to study because of that blending, actually. When we speak about sort of how, like, Judeo-Christian culture in America is shaped by these Ro our Roman forebears, blah, blah, blah. Again, we're talking in large part about this period. That's when that starts coming together. And feel free to correct me if I'm if I'm wrong there. But I think in our in our brains, we're sort of thinking about, like, the the Roman Republic and the orators and blah, blah, blah. But really, it kind of it did crystallize during this period in the Eastern Roman Empire rather than the West, because that, you know, the 
goths and so on. Like that had all collapsed by that point, but really it, it crystallized in Byzantium. A lot of it does. You're right. So the idealization of classical antiquity has to, in many cases, forget that we get a lot of this filtered through this Eastern Roman, early medieval reception, right? But the same is true about classical texts. And I'll just put it very clearly so the audience can understand this. Any ancient Greek text that we have, we have because it was preserved, like, let's say, in Constantinople. And by choices that they made... There are like very few texts that survive in like papyrus that we find in Egypt and something like, or in inscriptions, like like two or something, right? At the same time, Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine is formalized, codified, and ratified by imperial law in this period. So if you start asking any of the church, not not all Protestant churches, but (laughs) obviously their, their theologies differ, but Catholic, Orthodox, and many Protestant churches about their doctrines of the Trinity and and so forth and the natures Mm. of Christ and so on. Yeah, this was all codified at this time. Yep, yep. So, yes. So this idea about Western culture and its ancient roots, today it has to kind of pretend that it doesn't come from the Eastern Mediterranean in the early medieval period. The narrative! (laughs) I'm sure that if you talked to... The, the people who wrote the American Constitution, they'd be like, no, we are based on the Roman Republic, mm-hmm. not the not the Byzantine. That's that's completely separate. Yeah. Like they, they had this they kind of fetishized the Roman Republic and they they would not like being compared to a different era. Yes, that's true. No. And I'll give them that point. They certainly were not trying to imitate the East Roman political system, which was a monarchy. And in a certain way, I mean, you can call it an absolutist monarchy, though that's not how it operated in practice. But anytime they cited principles of Roman law, they were getting those from the corpus. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Like they were drawing a lot from Justinian's work. They just wouldn't want to say they yes, were. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's sort of the the same tradition as later medieval authors when they say, oh, well, Virgil wrote about this story and I'm just translating it now. They're making it all up. And then same thing with tons of these histories where every road has to lead back to Rome or it has to lead back to Troy. It's that same sort of, I wouldn't even want to call it a national myth, but like that same mythology, that same kind of lore coming through. You want to pull it back to these things, even if that's not the reality. Yeah. So this happens in later Western medieval history pretty regularly. So when they're talking about Rome, they really do mean to talk about ancient Rome in Italy. But their knowledge of it is often coming from contemporary Constantinople. Like that is their living model of what a Roman imperial regime looks like. And like all of its attributes, all the accessories and the laws and the court titles and the dress and the, you know, what court culture is like and all of this, they're getting it from Constantinople and projecting it onto ancient Rome. This, this happens a lot, especially in the era of the Crusades, because they, they have a living model of what a Roman imperial culture looks like. And that's it. I could give you lots of examples of this, but because often some, <laughs> they'll just use the Greek words. Right? Yeah. They'll just yeah. transliterate them into Latin, but they're Greek words from the East that have been, in our period, in Justinian's period, adapted to Roman institutions. This is a really interesting mix. At an us. Isidore Seville, actually, 7th century. So he's trying to explain to his readers in the etymologies what a triumph is. And of course, no one in the West had seen a triumph in I don't know how long. 
So he just starts talking about what they're doing in Constantinople, and he uses the Greek word, thriambos. And anyway, so that's just an example. Like, when they're trying to understand Roman institutions, they're just looking to Constantinople. This happens pretty often. Yeah. Isidore of Seville, incidentally, is also on our list of authors to do a series on eventually. Cracks me up. Okay, so shall we jump into Procopius and the Secret History? Yeah, I feel I feel like we've we've talked about the general vibe of the time. So, what can you tell our readers about Procopius as an author and so and or the secret an history as a text? Author. I'd love to read him in Greek. He writes very engaging Greek. And he's also one of the best historians of the ancient world. Let's call him the ancient world. He's one of the best historians whether you want to divide history as, you know, ancient and late antique or as Byzantine or East Roman. So he, his primary work is The Wars, which focuses on contemporary wars, specifically those that were waged by Justinian against uh, the Persians in the East, the Vandals in North Africa, the Goths in Italy. And interspersed in those, he has accounts of wars in the Balkans with the Slavs, one of the first sources to mention Slavs historically, and others like Huns and Bulgars and things like this. So this work, The Wars, there's hundreds and hundreds of pages And it ranges so widely geographically. He himself had accompanied some of the expeditions, especially with the General Belisarius. So some of these accounts are first person. He was clearly very close to army dudes and interviewed them for this purpose. So he knew how the army worked. He he wasn't a soldier. He was actually Belisarius's um, like legal advisor slash secretary or whatever. So he knew the laws. He he almost certainly knew Latin well enough, and he's just really an impressive historian. Now, we have three works of his. One is The Laws that I mentioned, and this is unusual not only in its clarity, but also in the fact that it was down to the minute. And this is very, very rare in Roman imperial historiography. Roman historians under the empire will almost always end with the previous reign so as not to have to discuss the current emperor whom you could only talk about in like praise terms. And if you're a historian who, if you have self-respect, you don't want to do that, no matter who the emperor is. And so you just kind of end safely with the previous reign. There are exceptions to this pattern. Procopius is the main one. He literally brings his narrative down to the year he's writing in, and then he wrote a supplement, Book 8, which extended the narrative for two more years down to the point where he was writing that supplement. And his account of Justinian in these works is not panegyrical. It's kind of neutral toward critical, which is very, very rare. And so for having the guts to do that, he gets points. So did did he have a death wish in doing this, or was Justinian very cool with this? What was that perspective? Because I'm remembering, for instance, for our more medieval corpus, Geoffrey of Monmouth, he did the whole history of the kings of Britain. He's like, "Ah, and I'm not going to talk about the present because I'm a political writer, not going to touch that. So what was the, I guess, the motive here? The motive is something separate from like how he- Or attitude. Yeah. Yeah. How he negotiated this problem. So I think that we have somewhat exaggerated the dangers of writing something like this. So in the Roman Empire, defamation of the emperor was literally a crime of treason. And we have lots of accounts. If you read Tacitus, for example, there are all of these historians in the first century, right, who are being 
prosecuted and even executed for writing things that are critical of the emperor, or even for staging plays that were taken to be mythological allusions to current events and things like this. But by the 6th century, I don't think it's quite that bad. In other words, the monarchy is pretty secure by this point. And I think Procopius, he took the risk of writing something that wasn't overtly critical and was, you know, very factually grounded. And I suspect that Justinian himself wouldn't have been too bothered about this sort of thing. And there are other episodes, like Justinian was upset if you like opposed his policies in some way. There are not any cases where he got upset at like things that people said. I don't, I don't think he was that insecure. <laughs> Fair enough. Good on him. <laughs> right. Now, the person who, who Procopius singles out as the most dangerous person was Theodora, the empress, like explicitly. Like she had spies everywhere that were reporting back to her what people were saying about her, about Justinian, whatever. And it was very, very dangerous. And so here's the interesting thing. The wars goes down to 550 or 551, which is two years after Theodora's death. In other words, Procopius, we know, was working on this book for years, possibly over a decade, but he didn't release it until after Theodora's death. In other words, the danger was Theodora, not Justinian. At least this is the calculation that I think Procopius made. And we don't know if it was right because... So two more texts. There's also the secret history which is he presents it as like an esoteric supplement to the wars. In other words, this is the stuff that I couldn't put in the wars. And I'm just going to bundle all of this into this separate dossier, write it up as a kind of scandalous inside history of the reign of Justinian, and that's a separate work. But he didn't release it, clearly. Like, we have no references to it until the 10th century. Though I suspect that there are people in his time who read it because he gave access to it, but to friends, right? Right, right. And then we have the buildings, which is a panegyrical text that praises Justinian for being such a wonderful emperor and specifically for all of his constructions. So we have an author here who has written a sort of quasi-neutral, somewhat critical history, a damning insider expose, and a public praise of the emperor. So go figure, like, if you're looking for the real Procopius, this is a bit of a challenge, right? And Mm -hmm. he tells us how the secret history fits with the wars. He says in the preface, this is the stuff that I didn't feel safe to put in the wars, but, like, I would have put it in the wars if I could. (laughs) Anyway, there's some signs that there's some critical material that he did move to the wars. And this is, I think, stuff that became more possible to say after the death of Theodora. But a lot of it remained in the secret history. And I, I just sort of suspect that Procopius was just waiting for Justinian to die so that right. he could just integrate all of this material and produce one work. But that never happened. So they just remained two. As for the buildings, we don't know the circumstances under which he wrote that. So, you know, scholars have imagined that he got into trouble. Perhaps even he got into trouble for writing the wars and he got hauled into the court and like, hey, what's this? This, this doesn't, you know, honor the emperor enough. And he's like, okay, I'll write something that does. I mean, that's completely made up. Mm-hmm. We don't know that that happened, right? But it's, it's a kind of scenario that we have to imagine, though there are lots of other scenarios. So in Procopius, we have this author who covers all of his bases <laughs> with regard to uh, Justinian. And let me just add that this kind of versatility has, over the centuries, I mean, like since Gibbon or 
you know, afterwards, kind of cast this negative light on the whole culture that it just consists of people mm. who don't have any integrity and will say whatever they need to say and they can adapt their views to the needs of the moment, right? Like this kind of thing. And of course, this is easier to say when you live in a country where you're free to say whatever you want. Right. Right. Um, you tried living under Justinian and writing the wars. I mean, that's, yeah. But anyway, it is a bit of a problem. So like, how can you have one person, an evidently very smart person? Why would he do this? So I can't answer that question. And it's, we're just going to be focusing on the secret history here. Right, right. Fascinating. Right. Fascinating. I mean, that's a that's a hell of a resume. I almost think that, like, if I'm going to make up a, a reason as to why he wrote the buildings, I'd almost say, like, that's that's the paycheck for, for the day job so that he can write the other things. But, you know, that's the way I'm thinking about it, given, you know, I'm in a creative field. I've got my creative day job so that I can go write my own projects in my spare time. So... <laughs> Right. But see, the buildings isn't entirely positive either. Oh, okay. Right. So this is something that I did actually in my dissertation. This is a very long time ago. So what I found was in the first pages of the buildings, he's laced them with all these classical allusions. So references to Homer and Hesiod and Xenophon and whatever. Mm -hmm. And if you track a lot of them down to like you find the passages that he's referring to, it's usually pretty damning. <laughs> so I'll give you an example. So he says somewhere that Justinian was, as the poet says, gentle as a father, which is from the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the Odyssey and you read the next line, boy, I'm forgetting out exactly what it is, but it's something like, and he became a source of ruin for me and my household. That, like, that's the next line, right? <laughs> Where he's describing Justinian's statue, this, this big equestrian statue in right next to Hagia Sophia. Mm -hmm. He says that he's shown like the star of autumn, like Achilles. Yeah, he says he's like Achilles, like the star of autumn. So if you go to the Iliad and you find the star of autumn, the next line is, which brings death and pestilence to mankind. Wow. Sneaky wow. He does this again and again and again. And... Believe it or not, I've been told these are just coincidences. I think, no, no, they're not coincidences. <laughs> nah. This actually clears up something I was, I was going to ask you later, is that I have heard people say, or not say, like I have read this in articles, that, oh, the secret history was kept secret because if there was a coup or something, Procopius would be able to pull it out and say, no, no, I'm with you guys, I always hated Justinian, but that it wasn't necessarily his actual feelings on the matter. But this is making it much more plausible that the secret history is yeah, him sharing so his Yeah, so scholars are very squeamish around the concept of true thoughts or is someone's true beliefs or whatever, right? Like, And we, we live in an age where sometimes it's very difficult to know what anyone thinks about it. Because anyway, you know, the more complicated the world you live in, the more <laughs> contingent and circumstantial, you, you know, your views are going to be. So I should say that there is a strain of scholarship about the 6th century, which uh, hence it's hard to, I don't want to sort of misrepresent it, but a lot of it comes from historians and social historians who generally want to see the society as more ideologically coherent and homogeneous. So everybody kind of accepted imperial ideology. There's not like major dissidents. Okay. That's not the view that you get if you come at these texts from, say, a classical studies background, where so classicists are 
much more inclined to find right. subversive thoughts in things. So there has been a an, an effort to normalize Procopius as a kind of like nothing to see here, folks. This is all whatever. I'm not persuaded by those readings. I mean, obviously. And so you wouldn't need something like the secret history in case there was a regime change. When there's a regime change in the Roman Empire, like everyone always immediately kind of falls in line with the new, like nobody expects you to be like loyal to the previous regime. It's like, what can you do for us now? And I know of no instance where someone Mm -hmm. had to like produce something like that to demonstrate that he could be on board with a new regime, but whatever. Anyway, the work (laughs) exists as it is. It's a pretty damning criticism. It is a dangerous thing to write. He says so. He didn't circulate it. I take him at face value, at his word, that this was just stuff that was too dangerous to write, and I'm pretty sure it was. Which is not to say yeah. that it's true. Makes sense. Right. Right. <laughs> That's the other half Which of it. is actually the next question I wanted to, to ask you to speak on is, The Secret History presents a different version of Justinian than we traditionally see. What is, could you tell us, like, what is the more mainstream view of Justinian for any audience members who may not be familiar with Right now, I mean, and by now I mean for the past 400 years, Justinian's image has been so indelibly tarnished by the secret history that it's very much a part of the picture. See, down to 1623 or so, actually that's exactly 400 years (laughs) Nobody knew about the secret history. And Justinian was known from his legal work and from like a Sophia and his wars and things like that, but primarily his legal work. And he was understood to be basically like the Christian Solomon, like a wise lawgiver, especially starting in the 11th century in Western Europe, when the corpus was rediscovered and Roman legal studies were reinstituted and gradually legal systems kind of began to adjust to Roman law. They were basically just, you know, following Justinian in all of this. So Justinian had this superlative reputation as the basic founder of legality and whole legal order. And along comes this text, which shows not only that Justinian was corrupt and dangerous and murderous and, you know, quasi-demonic and surrounded himself with crooks and thugs and prostitutes and so forth, but that he corrupted the law. In other words, that he used the law as an instrument of corruption. This was a terrible accusation, right? In other words, it's not enough that you have a law legalizing something. Procopius revealed that the backstory to a lot of the laws was corrupt. So the whole edifice was called into question. And so Justinian has had a very ambiguous reputation since then. Now, remember that this early 17th century also coincides with the wars of religion in Europe. And mm-hmm. Procopius mm-hmm. makes it yep. clear just what an intolerant persecutor Justinian was against, you name it, you know, Jews, other Christian, you know, minority groups, and so also homosexuals, astrology, like vicious punishments meted out against these groups. And suddenly Justinian looked like you know, the kind of ruler who would have created a war of religion rather than created, you know, peace in a diverse empire. And so, you know, by the time you get to Gibbon, I mean, that's really stuck. Like Justinian has an ambiguous reputation Mm -hmm. by then and still does. So there are people who think he's great. And all of those people basically agree with his theology. I got to say that. Yeah. 
Of and course. Then of there's course. like, well, and more ambiguous figure. And there and then there are people who think he's like evil. Like kind of like Stalin left like like you you can't redeem this. Mm. So the modern image of Justinian yep. is all over the mm-hmm. place. The bulk of it is just kind of ambiguous. But there are a lot of historians who still write books in which he's the villain. And Procopius has a lot to do with that. Makes sense. So when you speak to his supporters, shall we say, matching his theology, what specific theology is that? Is that, for instance, early Catholic church theology? Is this early church theology before the Catholics were Catholic per se? Is like What version, if you will, are we talking about? Just for a little more context, because there's a lot of different versions of Christianity. (laughs) This is Catholic theology, right? So in in its core, so before the Reformation, when lots of groups achieve escape velocity and go off into wherever they go. So before that point, the whole millennium before that is basically, so in, in the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, it's whatever Justinian said it was. And so specifically in this case... So we are past the Arian controversy of the 4th century. So this is about whether the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are consubstantial in the Trinity. That's been solved in this tradition yep. already. That's Arian A-R-I. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. From, this is named after a priest in Alexandria named Arius. And we are at the point where the big debate is about natures, specifically the human and the divine natures of Christ. How are they united, conjoined you know, put fitted together, you know, any word you use is controversial in this. And there was a, by Justinian's time, a century long conflict over this. And he decided how it was to be resolved and caused a number of the Eastern churches to split off from communion with Rome and Constantinople. So this is why today we have, for example, the Coptic church, or yep. later on, like the Armenian church, the Syrian Orthodox church, like they don't recognize the decisions that Justinian made, right? Mm-hmm. And those churches remain, so they're not part of the broader either Orthodox or Catholic world. They agree about everything else before that, but not that. Yep. And part of the problem, so if you're in Justinian's camp, as it were, right? So if you, as a Christian, you're in the line that comes from Justinian's decisions in the church councils that he convened. Part of the problem is that Justinian kind of dictated the answers. He convened councils. He told them, this is what you're going to find. And the bishops met and they found exactly word for word what he told them they were supposed to find. That's an amazing coincidence. (laughs) Yes. And if the Pope didn't want to go along with that for any number of reasons, and there was a Pope in Constantinople who did not, you basically twist his arm until he does, and he did. So this is kind of like a very, it makes people very nervous because from an Eastern Roman Orthodox standpoint, there's this peculiar idea in the West that religious questions are supposed to be resolved autonomously by religious institutions and not the state, which is a weird idea. <laughs> so mm-hmm. from, from an East Roman standpoint, of course, it's the emperor that decides these things. Yep. In essence, like they don't yep. make it. It's not, not officially so, but, you know. Right. Like the, the emperor and the patriarch are hanging out together all the time. They're very close allies. Like it's kind of expected that, that the patriarch is going to do what the emperor wants. 
Exactly. Yes. At okay. this point, the patriarch is taking orders. For example, this is <laughs> this was the great benefit, say, to the bishops of Rome of not being in the empire and living under, say, the Ostrogothic regime, which being Arian, that is, again, A-R-I-A-N, <laughs> like, wasn't particularly interested in, like, the doctrines of the Catholic Church because, I mean, they regard, the Arians regarded themselves as Catholic. But anyway, the point is that they kind of let the bishops alone. Do their own thing. They didn't yep. care about the question of natures or whatever. But when Justinian conquers Italy, suddenly, like, the Pope is right up in the... <laughs> Right up there, Justinian can literally dictate terms, summon the, the Pope to Constantinople, you know, whatever. Yep. So it suddenly becomes much, a much more tense situation. Anyway, yeah, so Justinian is a major player in defining modern Catholic and Orthodox doctrine, identity, so forth. And his persecutions caused those other churches to split off. And I mean, there were other factors and there was a prehistory. He didn't do it by himself. Right. But he led to the final rupture. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. And that that's interesting. That's something that I wanted to get at a little bit more because we have this idea in the States of separation of church and state. And that is something that at this period is very, very foreign. That is not something that exists really as an idea. And so when it comes to that, it's not it's not like the Pope is distinct from the emperor. It's not like the church is distinct from the emperor. So I, I wanted to make sure that that at least is clear, because that's that's a very big difference than, for instance, what modern Protestants in the US will think about church and state. Sure. Now, having said that, in all periods, there are Christians who object when the state authorities kind of in a heavy handed way, you know, are dictating on religious issues. Yep. But they do this. Only when the state authorities are deciding against them. Yep. Right. So it's, it's not that they think it's wrong for the state to intervene. It's that they think the state made the wrong decision. Exactly. Every single group at some point or another has appealed to the state authorities to come in and settle the matter in their favor because they're clearly right. Mm -hmm. And in those cases where it doesn't go their way, then they fall back on the, oh, but state authorities shouldn't get involved in these things. So the discourse is there. It's just never, there's no Christian institution that practices it in principle. Like, mm -hmm. anyway, when you can get state authority to back you up, you will. And yep. they all seek it. Beyond that, I think that the idea that like the church should be separate from state regulation is a, you know, what we would consider a very kind of highfalutin idea that very few people were even aware of. In the Roman Empire, the emperor is the last word about pretty much everything. And it's not just in the church. The emperor is like not supposed to be heavy handed in, in anything. The emperor is supposed to build consensus and, you know, do things in a way that's in accordance with his subject's values and, and so forth. Not just in religion, in taxation, that's far more important for most people. So there's a general idea, and it's not just about religion, that the emperor has to, you know, consult and, you know, and be accountable and all of this. But ultimately, he has the last word. Like, I think everybody understands that. And Justinian, <laughs> Justinian had no doubt that he had the last word. And <laughs> anyway, yeah. Anyway, Procopius in the secret history reveals the dark side of this. That Justinian had like was this callous 
person who made cold calculations. And, you know, if his decrees resulted in members of particular groups being stripped of their property and living in poverty, then so be it. If it led to deaths. In fact, Procopius says in one place that Justinian didn't consider it murder if the victims were someone, people of a different faith. <laughs> Good Lord. That's an idea. It's a striking formulation. It's not something that you find commonly in Roman imperial literature. No. Mm -hmm. And so he goes after that. And Procopius himself, he doesn't care about the issues of theology here. In the wars, this is in the public work, he says that it is stupid to investigate the nature of God. And th this is at a moment when <laughs> the very question under debate was the nature, na was natures, the dual natures of Christ. That's amazing. I'm kind of gratified to know that at least one person at the time was agreeing with me that all this from God or of God stuff is a bit silly and we should just move past it. He's got a point. <laughs> he does say that. And he says, I have studied these debates thoroughly and I could go on and on about them, but I regard it as stupid to do that. He basically says, oh, you know, God is just and good and like just kind of leave it at that. I don't think he was alone in this. Smaller groups were dedicated to these questions one way or another. The majority of the population couldn't possibly understand the theology. This is not why they chose sides. It was not because they thought the theology was right. But anyway, we're, um, we would get far from Procopius if we started talking about them. He's at the very opposite end of the spectrum. He's someone who knows the issues thoroughly and, and doesn't believe that they're worth debating. That's a cool idea. There are some more specific things I wanted to ask you about, but first I wanted to get clarification on something you said a little while ago. You said something about the secret history kind of being rediscovered in the 17th century. Could you explain how that happened? Sure. So re rediscovered here is like Columbus discovering America. I mean, the, <laughs> the text survives, and so that means that it had an audience and copyists in Constantinople for a thousand years, like by definition. We have some idea of a few people who may have read it. A lot more research needs to be done on this. But a manuscript showed up in the Vatican Library. Uh, it was found by the librarian in the early 17th century, and he published it minus the chapter on Theodora, which was too much even for him. <laughs> and that's when it enters the phase of its modern reception. It's resurgence. Yeah, this was just a manuscript find by a li librarian. So kudos. And he published it even if in a <laughs> abridged form. <laughs> so you've talked about this a little, but how does Procopius go about undermining not just Justinian the person, but the regime and ideology of Justinian the emperor? And similar question for Belisarius. Yeah, so this is the interesting thing. Um, if you're going to undermine a political figure that represents a kind of political ideology, think today. Pick, pick a prominent political figure you would want to undermine. I have a list. Some of them present easier targets than others. And specifically, they present easier targets if they are on the record with some very firm and sometimes unusual ideological pronouncements. And so this is the thing about Justinian is that he was, uh, I mean, he wasn't exactly tweeting all the time, but <laughs> he had opinions and he wanted everybody to know them. And sometimes he was up late at night writing these down <laughs> or 
Anyway, yeah. There are modern analogs, shall we say. <laughs> yes. If Twitter existed, he would have been tweeting all through the night. Because Procopius says that he was up all night, like, summoning his officials in for meetings and talking with monks about theology and, like, what he didn't sleep very much, uh, didn't eat very much. Anyway, okay, so we have Justinian on the record, like, hundreds and hundreds of pages. Why? Well, first of all, because he issued all of those laws, <laughs> even after he compiled the corpus in, you know, 533, 534... There's the Codex. This is his compilation of previous imperial literature. He continued to issue laws after that. Lots of them, hundreds of them. We have hundreds of them. Where he goes on and on and on about everything, like how homosexuality causes earthquakes and the price of vegetables and like you name it, right? About his view of himself. And one scholar put it very well that Justinian was over aware of living in the age of Justinian. Ooh. <laughs> That is a good, that's a good phrase. So Justinian was very conscious about his place in history and his views and how God supported his regime and so forth. And not only that, but he had been issuing laws from the very moment he became sole emperor 527. And when his team of legal scholars compiled the codex, they made sure that every chapter and subchapter ended with Justinian's relevant law on that topic, in most cases, not all of them, and they abridged it less. So it's like, if you're reading the relevant sections of Roman law, Justinian usually has the last word. So there's a lot of Justinian on the record, and Procopius, being Belisarius's legal advisor, knew all of this stuff, right? So he knew exactly what kind of image of himself Justinian wanted to promote, of like this pious, tireless emperor who doesn't sleep because he's up all night working on his subject's problems and mm -hmm. he's supported by God and all the monks love him and the monks pray for him and he's devoted to monasteries and so forth. And so Procopius takes that and just turns it on its head, right? Mm. Like point for point. And so he has Justinian who's not like an agent of Jesus Christ on earth, but is in fact a quasi-demonic figure so instead of being loved by monks, Procopius tells stories about monks who enter the throne room and they see Justinian, like, minus his face. Wow. Yeah. Or Because he's a demon. Yes, yes. He's not human. Well, see, I, yeah, see, I, I'm thinking, like, oh, he's lounging, eating grapes or something. That's a totally different no, level. He's inhuman. In other words, rather than wow. make him... Th this was a very clever choice, right? So you could go the way of, oh, Justinian, he's just, like... He's a classical tyrant. He's like eating and sleeping all the time and he's sleeping with all the senators' wives and all of that. Procopius goes the other way, which is that Justinian has no human passions. Like if only he were just addicted to food and drink and sex, like that would be great because that's just another d right? But no, no, no. Justinian is this <laughs> infernal, inhuman thing. He doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. There are times when he doesn't have a head. There are times when his body is literally walking around the halls of the palace minus its head. <laughs> right? That's amazing. Now you think that's an incredible image. And Procopius says, I heard a monk who said that. Right? Like, so he's getting, he's distancing Justinian even from like the monks who are supposed to be like one of the symbolic pillars of this regime. But here's the interesting thing. Remember, we were talking about the theological debates about the natures of Christ. Anyway, Justinian had branded his opponents as theologians and bishops who didn't agree with his theology. His word for them was the headless ones. Ah. Wow. I, I see. Akephali, right? 
because in theory, they have separated themselves off from the church through their false theology. And so Christ is not the head of their church. Their church is headless, like they have no divine leader. They're just on their own. Mm -hmm. And Procopius has turned that into an image of just, it's just incredible. That's beautiful. So he just does this again and again. The passions that Justinian has are like for bloodshed and murder. And he has this image where someone has a vision of Justinian drinking up all of the waters of the Bosporus around Constantinople. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so it's, it's this inhuman, infernal kind of dimension that he gives to Justinian. Anyway, so that's one aspect of this deconstruction. The other one, and of course this doesn't mesh with the first one, but the other one is Justinian's greed. Now, mm-hmm. greed is a much more human passion. Like, you, you, you can understand that, right? But he had to introduce something or else he, he couldn't make sense of a lot of the specific laws. Because what he wanted to argue mm. is that a lot of these specific laws are due to corruption. Justinian is trying to get someone's wealth or reward one of his favorites. And so he, he exposes the kind of corrupt background of some of these laws. And so the idea is that if Justinian isn't killing his subjects through wars and religious intolerance, he's basically stealing their property in unjust ways Mm -hmm. and surrounds himself with people who are happy to go along with this, like all the most corrupt people. Or if they're not originally corrupt, he makes them complicit in his crimes so that now they have to go Mm -hmm. along. Right. So that's the kind of uh, main thrust of the secret history in order to kind of delegitimate Justinian as a ruler. And uh, Belisarius? Right. Well, that's, that is, a, in a certain sense, is a sadder story because in the wars, Procopius presents Belisarius at times as a Roman hero, like a general. And, you know, Belisarius has undeniable successes, like incredible feats of, I mean, if you regard generalship as an art, right, of right, that art. Right. He came closer than probably than I think anyone ever has of actually rebuilding the Roman Empire. Yes. So North Africa and Italy were regarded as like kind of lost provinces, and any efforts to take them back had just kind of been disastrous. And Belisarius is kind of you know cleans house in like just a few months. It's really incredible what he did. And there are passages in the wars where Procopius is praising Belisarius, and you can tell like it's it's sincere, like he really admired this person. But in the secret history, he presents the other side, which is that Belisarius was personally weak. And here, Procopius turns to gender. It's kind of gender is, in a way, another structuring paradigm of this work. And he's very, very clever at it. So, you know, in a previous generation, it was always like, well, you know, Procopius is, has all the gender biases of, of a, a man of his time and age and so forth. And so he just kind of vents and, yeah, no, no. I mean, sure he does, but that's not what he's doing here. He's using gender like with a, like a scalpel. It's really, really incredible what he does. So he basically unmans Belisarius. He, he presents him as a person who... When push came to shove in a political context, it's not fighting vandals and goths, like that's easy. But when you're up against Justinian and Theodora, he presents this picture where like the women are wearing the pants. So Theodora and Belisarius's wife, Antonina, have kind of joined forces to emasculate Belisarius 
And at the key moment when he needs to kind of stand up and be a man against this, he doesn't. He caves, right? So Procopius presents, and, and this is standard, right? It's like Aristotelian notions of tyranny as a regime where like women and eunuchs rule. Rule. And, <laughs> yep. right? Right, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and the, think the movie, The 300. Right. Right. Okay. And the, and the, the men have been forced into servility and so forth. And he, he has episodes that are so, that capture this so perfectly. Like he has this moment where he, uh, Belisarius is supposedly so afraid for his life that like in a kind of think of a Stalinesque purge that the people will come knocking on the door right at night. And they do and they come knocking and the court official says, oh, okay, the emperor has decided to pardon you for now. And Belisarius has been like in terror the whole time, like curled up on his bed. I kid you not. And then Antonina comes wow. in and he says, well, the emperor is sparing you because of your wife. And Belisarius falls to the ground and starts licking the inside of her feet, like her boots, in some kind of weird S&M kind of scene. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I mean, it's... Wow. Procopius is just a master at these images. And it's like, yeah, that's all you need to say about, you know, what you're trying to convey here. I get it. Right? And then... His wife is, of course, cheating on him, and he refuses to see it, and everyone's telling him, but he's so, so yeah, it's all of that. Right. Well, because he's not man enough. She right. needs to go find a man yeah. while she can yeah. control him. So why he turned on Belisarius like this? I, I don't know. Like, we don't know their personal history. Mm -hmm. Hard to say. Anyway, Belisarius did fall out of favor at the court. Maybe... So there's a passage where Procopius says that Belisarius should have turned on Justinian and like gotten rid of this tyrant and everyone would have been behind him because we all loved him or, you know, and it, it could be like he's disappointed that every time Belisarius should have done the right thing and become a tyrannicide or whatever, he didn't. That does sound like a plausible reading. That's the impression he wants to give, so. What a way to lose favor. Like, you suck. You didn't kill our tyrant king. <laughs> Yeah. Impressive. Impressive. So our last little section here is about the most notorious section of the secret history, the one which our lovely friend in Rome did not include in the 17th century, which is about Theodora, the empress, and her, as you put it, X-rated past. And so I was wondering if you could, well, one, give listeners a sneak peek into that, since we're not covering the secret history today but also how historians can cope with this past and and how we kind of stick that with, one, the rest of Justinian's history, and two, the secret history itself, especially since it was censored. Yeah, though only for a, a while. I mean, even in the 17th century, that kind of material is, is, is bound <laughs> to get out, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, so this is chapter nine, which is the background of Theodora. And it's very pornographic. It's quite possibly the most explicitly pornographic text that survives from antiquity. There are, you know, so Petronius' Satyricon has some comparable passages. Right. right. Yeah, but otherwise, it's pretty X-rated. And Theodora's background was in the sex trade in Constantinople. It's very likely that today we would we would consider her as someone who was you know, unfree in her choices and, you know, basically caught up in a in a sex trade in which she had very little say, you know, call it trafficked or whatever. Now, it's vicious. 
But it's also rhetorically constructed. So just like all the rest, right, just like all the other episodes that I mentioned, it's like Mm -hmm. very just so. Now, one temptation that we should avoid or that I have always avoided is to heroize Theodora as some sort of feminist or whatever. There's very little reason to, to think that. So another temptation... So, by the way, there's a book on Theodora published every, I don't know, a few months, it seems. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Well, she's quite the figure. Yes. So, it makes sense. Absolutely. Not only is Procopius' Theodora kind of notorious, she's kind of become emblematic of a particular type of queen, empress, ruler, whatever, in antiquity or the Middle Ages, who's, you know, rises up from obscurity and even a kind of disreputable past and marries the emperor and and, and has a strong personality. There's no question that she did. Mm. And so you will find this type in many, many novels and even fantasy novels. That's just, that's Procopius. That's yeah, I, I mean, I can I can see where the temptation comes from. When I was reading Procopius' like, account, and I was like, she actually sounds kind of cool. Like, that would be a fun character in a book. Definitely a fun character in a book. I would, I would not want to uh, meet her. <laughs> so one temptation to avoid is to gentrify her. And this is very, very common in books that are published. Now, it's like that Procopius has not only exaggerated, but kind of made this up. And that she was, in fact, from a respectable middle class background. I'm like, why are you doing this? Mm. Like, who wants this exactly? Now, here's the thing. We have a contemporary reference by someone who admired her because she and Justinian played opposite sides of the theological controversy. And Procopius says this was cynical. And I believe him. I think there's evidence that he's right. And one of the people on her side that is who rejected Justinian's theology wrote lots of stories in Syriac about saints and so forth. And Theodora appears there as a pious queen and always does good things and all that. And this guy just admits that she was, quote, from the brothel. Like, that's her background. Mm-hmm. It's, he doesn't comment on it. He, You know, it's the sort of thing that Christian repentance can fix. Forgive, yep. <laughs> Forgive. So, you know, you move on. Like, okay. But there are modern historians who have class anxieties about this and who try to make all that go away so that the empress can have a more respectable background. So, yeah, no, I don't think so. And Justinian, in one of his laws about regulating prostitution, specifically pimping, he, uh, I think, he he says that he asked his wife for advice on how this worked and things like this. I, I could be misread. I could be getting that law wrong, but she was involved in the regime's policies regarding sex workers, specifically locking them up in monasteries, but whatever. That's a policy, I guess. So I I wouldn't go that far. You know, I think, yeah, her background was that. And it must have involved the kinds of things that you would expect someone caught in that situation to have done and to have done to her and so forth. Fine. But that doesn't mean that Procopius's account is reliable reporting. No, 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 no. No. (laughs) It's specifically designed to achieve the maximum rhetorical effect Right? Just like all the other stories. So mm-hmm. there's a kernel of truth to it, but that's not what he's doing. He's creating memorable images. So I'll give you an example. 
The most notorious passage in the work, which Gibbon even couldn't quote, and he says, I will leave it to the obscurity of a learned language, and he quoted the Greek in a footnote, which is just another way of drawing attention to it, by the way. Of yes. course. Yes. It's like those old editions of Catullus where you wanted to find all the dirty words, you would just look where the translation had French. <laughs> yep, yep. And he says that Theodora was not satisfied that she had only three holes with which to perform sex acts with her clients, but wished that the holes in her nipples could also accommodate other clients so that she could take on five at a time. Okay. This is a notorious passage. That is the one I was thinking of when you were talking about like how Procopius exaggerates this, this particular wow. portrayal. Right. Oh, this isn't just an exaggeration it's also kind of ridiculous yes it's meant it's comically ridiculous okay mm -hmm. but what procopius is doing there he's engaging with ancient rhetoric and specifically with two ancient orators uh one is sort of pseudo demosthenes and anyway like classical rhetorical texts that he had and that we either have or have reports about nera and others and so these are ancient Athenian rhetorical denunciations of women of loose morals. Oh. Yes. And so, like, one of them says, this woman is so notorious that she used two holes in the performance of sex acts. And the next one says, one-ups it and says, no, she's so notorious that she used three holes. Okay. Procopius is just kind of engaging with this tradition and just kind of comically and ludicrously taking it to the next level like mm -hmm. and because his readers will know demosthenes corpus yep, yep. they're like oh okay i i get it. i get it's what a, you're doing it's a touchstone that they can reference yes i get what you're doing so the secret history just because it's all the secret dirt that procopius couldn't put in the wars it doesn't mean that it's like dry factual reporting it's as literary as anything and he had, he must have had so much fun putting this together. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm so excited to dig into this text now. His imagery is phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> in, in both the good and bad ways, there's, there's a lot there. I mean, like when he said, what did Justinian look like? Well, he, he says, he looked a little bit like the Emperor Domitian, but the Emperor Domitian after his body had been cut up into little bits by the mob and had then been re-sewn together by his wife, who was a very dutiful, pious wife, who put his body back together and sewed it up. He's kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Incredible. I'm like, okay. And he says, I saw a statue of this in Rome. <laughs> what, what did you see? Fra a statue of Frankenstein? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> The marble carvings of the stitches were just incredible. <laughs> was he one of the ones that got a damnatio memoriae? Oh, yes. I, I feel like that would also make it a very good comparison. It's like, oh, yeah, he looked exactly like that other emperor who we hated so much that we obscured his faces in all the carvings. Oh. Like that. He looked like that. Exactly. And he said he had this kind of reddish complexion. And now you think, why a reddish complexion? Well, so in the ancient sources, if you have a reddish complexion, it means that you can't blush when you do something shameful. Ah. Uh, Interesting. Right. So you can lie and whatever, and it won't show on your face, according to ancient theory. I right. have not heard right. that before. That's that's interesting. Well, that it reminds me again of something we'll see very, very often in 
medieval texts, even later medieval texts, where the body reflects the morals of the person within. It kind of goes back to the same standing of, oh, well, if you're a noble, you must be holy because God gave you this wealth. And so this idea of virtue and riches and all of that, all good things are together. And so the same thing here, if you look beautiful, you must be virtuous. Well, if you're red-faced, then you must be a liar, you know, a thief, you know, all of that. So lines up. Yeah. So when you read the secret history, you know, it helps to be able to decode a lot of these things that way or to catch the illusions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's playing with classical texts there too, just as he does in the buildings, just as he does in the wars. So yeah, I love Procopius for all of this. Like you can really poke around and find things. And the interest in Procopius goes way beyond whether this is like quote, true. <laughs> there is one more uh, somewhat specific question I wanted to ask you, which is something that I noticed reading Procopius that I've gotten different opinions on trying to look up secondary sources about. When Procopius is talking about religion, he always refers to Christians as they rather than we. They're always in the third person and he doesn't seem to be including himself. Is that a stylistic choice? And if so, why? Or is Procopius an example of a non-Christian writer in a Christian nation? I think both of those statements are true. So the third person, so back in the 60s, there were a couple of scholars, Avril and Alan Cameron, and they published some articles on this. And I fairly convincingly argued that the third person is not an indication of his own distancing from that group. Like this is kind of standard. It's a, a bit of a convention of this kind of writing where you refer to groups in the third person, even if you might belong to them. So, for example, he's a Roman, but he refers to the Romans as they too, or the Romans or whatever. Occasionally, he'll say we, sometimes because he was himself part of the group mm -hmm. in question, like, okay, that's, that's very personal. Sometimes because, you know, these authors kind of identify with the Roman order. But when it comes to religion, for those reasons, that's not a reliable indicator. So I'll just say that views differ about Procopius's religion. I have maintained that there's a lot of reason to doubt that he was a a Christian like any kind of other kind of Christian that lived at this time. Mm -hmm. And that when you have doubts about an author who's living in an environment where it's definitely not safe. I mean, Justinian had literally uh, made it illegal and sometimes on penalty of death. Mm -hmm. Every state official had, had to be a Christian, had to swear to it. And any, if you were caught relapsing into paganism, that carried the death penalty. And we know of people on whom this was inflicted. So this was a serious case where you don't want to mess around with Justinian and his regime. There was every incentive to have to at least pretend. Procopius was some kind of state official at some time, is affiliated with the administration. So he absolutely had to maintain that kind of pretense. So a general principle in my view is that if someone is giving mixed signals in that kind of environment, the burden of proof lies with those who would believe that he's conventional in, in his beliefs. My view is probably in the minority. I would say, like, full disclosure, most of the field wants to believe that he's a Christian. Yet, when they try to qualify what kind of Christian, and they say, well, okay, maybe he doesn't believe in this, and maybe he doesn't believe in that, and maybe he starts to look like a very, very strange Christian right. <laughs> for that period, for that period. 
At which point, like, I would then say, well, okay, so why are we then keeping up that category? Like, let's just make up another category for him. But I think that there are positive reasons to think that he wasn't. And by not being a Christian, you don't necessarily have to be like, you know, an ox sacrificing pagan. Like, Right. Right. But any kind of vague Neoplatonism that can encompass Christianity, even in some form, there were Neoplatonists at the time who were very ambiguous about these kinds of things. I think he's much more likely to belong to that kind of category. But like I said, views differ. Yeah. And if if listeners will remember when we did one of our Pride episodes, this was when kind of asceticism was on the rise. So paganism at this point also looked very different than that classical, like, yes, I'm going to sacrifice the heifer to the gods sort of paganism. Right. All right. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to tell us about this this time and place that you think would be valuable for our listeners to know? Yes. Procopius is part of a very, very diverse and flourishing intellectual culture. His position on things is not necessarily representative of the rest of the culture. But honestly, I don't think that there is any one text that is. So there are texts in this period that are sort of very, very sort of theocratic, that interpret everything through God's will. There's asceticism, there's whatever. Procopius is someone who I think feels comfortable in the presence of soldiers. He praises them in Homeric terms. He's got this sort of classical political ideology and classical literary training. So he's kind of one end of a spectrum. If readers want to, you know, dive in and the secret history is a great place to, I mean, it's also a great text to teach with because it's short and scandalous and it keeps students' attention, Um, right? And then you can use all of those scandalous episodes to kind of poke it and and get at some of the templates of of the culture because, you know, who cares what Theodora was doing? What's interesting is how she was being debated, you know, Mm -hmm. and pro, con, and so forth. There are lots of very interesting texts from this period. There's a lot going on. And Constantinople in this period is a city where you have historians writing in Greek and Latin and Syriac and probably all know each other. And I just find that that fascinating. It's one of these rare moments in history. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. Okay, um, before we wrap up again, are there any, for instance, primers that you would recommend for our listeners if they want to dig even deeper into the period or Byzantium, anything like that? This could be books, articles, YouTube videos, whatever you want, aside from the secret history, which we'll cover in a few episodes. I would always recommend that they read the primary sources Probably stay away from online videos. I, I I don't think I've ever come across a video on YouTube about this period or Justinian that I would recommend. People who make YouTube videos about Byzantine history have a have a tendency to be, be a bit um, fashy. I think. Yeah, we could do a whole other episode discussion on <laughs> yes on this, but there are some very good books about the age of Justinian. I would advise, so I'm not going to single any ones out in particular, but I would advise audience to stay away from the ones that are kind of like Theodora-centric. There are lots. So if it's like Justinian and Theodora or Theodora and whatever, like that shouldn't be the first place you go. Yeah, I mean, it's important to understand the legal context. Oh, well, it hasn't been released. Brian Croke is writing a biography of Justinian. For many years now, last year he wrote to me and said that it's nearing some sort of completion. 
So I would definitely recommend that. Brian Croak is an excellent scholar of this period. The biography of Justinian is something we don't really have, and it would tie a lot of these things together. Otherwise, Procopius's Wars is the main history of this period. All right. Awesome. We will be on the lookout for that. And of course, you also have an online presence. Where can our listeners find you and your knowledge about Byzantium? Well, so before I get to the online, I, as I said, I'm, I'm about to publish a very long history of Byzantium, which this is also a whole other discussion, but we're, we're not going to be calling Byzantium for very much longer, by the way. Ah, that's a shame. It, it, it rolls off the tongue so well. I like it. <laughs> it's got a Y in it and a Z, right? Which is kind of interesting. But so I'm publishing a history that devotes considerable attention to the era of Justinian, the sixth century. So there are quite a few chapters about that and the whole sort of cultural environment. Um, that'll be out in October. Hey, Future Mac here. So we recorded this episode a few months in advance. Dr. Caldellis indicates that his book will be out in October. It's, of course, now early November. His book is out. So if you want to know more about this period of history, you can go get it right now. We'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find it. So readers can get, you know, there was about a good 100, 150 pages on this period from there. Otherwise, I run a podcast of my own. It's called Byzantium and Friends, and where I basically interview colleagues who are doing uh, interesting work in anything from the Roman Empire to the Ottoman Empire, but mainly focusing on the Eastern Roman Empire. I'm now in my summer break period, <laughs> but I think I have something like 98 episodes up there. So, yep. you know, your audience, if they want to learn more about the Eastern part of the the Roman Empire and how it fared in the Middle Ages, they can go there. There are lots of interesting topics. I'm sure many of them do want Fabulous. to learn about that. Yes, definitely. Awesome. Well, all of these references and resources will be in our show notes. You can definitely find that. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on. And if ever you want to come back, if ever we find another weird Byzantine text, we will definitely give you a ring. And if you're open to it, we'll have you back on anytime. I definitely would be open to it. And thank you so much for inviting me for this discussion. It was it was really fun to get my head back into Procopius land for a while. Thank you for, for taking the time. Yeah. All right. Take care. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Well, whoop, hold on. Something's just gone odd with my... All right, I was about to pull up the next question, but uh, Google Docs just signed oh. me out for no reason. So give me about... Okay. Oh, I can do back. it. Oh, you got it? Okay. All right.